This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. This week, I was fortunate enough to speak with Jan Talen, founder of Skype and the creator of the Kazar file sharing network. These days, Jan concerns himself with the study of existential risk and artificial intelligence. And as we'll see, those two fields do have some overlap with crypto economics. There's a symmetry in recording an interview with the individual who developed the very software that is being used to record the interview especially when the participants of the conversation are located on opposite sides of the globe. I've conducted some really interesting interviews in my time as a podcaster, but I have to say this is probably the most interesting of all. It seemed appropriate to record the entire thing through Skype. How's it going, Jan? Hello. All right, so I'm going to start with a quick, uh, with a quick intro and then we'll get stuck into it. Um, Welcome to the Ether Review. Today I have Jan Talen, founder of Skype and creator of the file sharing program Kazar. Thanks for joining me, Jan. Thanks for having me. Now, today you do more than just create these uh, these revolutionary peer-to-peer technologies. You're involved in the uh, Center for the Study of Existential Risk. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So these days I do spend split my time between two big areas or activities. Uh, one of them, like, half of my time or so goes into angel investing uh, and I have about um, 50 to 60 uh, companies in my portfolio. Uh, and the other half uh, goes into what I call uh, existential risk reduction. That is uh, trying to reduce the probability that humanity will blow itself up uh, with ever-increasing, uh, with technology of ever-increasing power. And uh, to that effect, I have, uh, I support uh, what I call existential risk ecosystem. Uh, there are about roughly 10 organizations uh, that I support, and two of them I have co-founded. Uh, one of them is at MIT, called Future of Life Institute. And the other one is at the Cambridge uh, University, indeed called the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, or CSER, as it's known more colloquially. So recently, you uh, you sent me two links to two really interesting articles that uh, that really I found helpful in understanding the reality of existential risk, which mm-hmm. uh, from from these advanced technologies, which I didn't take honestly, I, I didn't take seriously at all until I read. Um, uh, both meditations on Moloch and then ascended economy, which uh, okay. which both both stack on one another. These are from uh, SlateStarCodex.com. Could we start by and and I'm happy to take this interview wherever you'd like to go with it. But I'd, I'd like to start by understanding this idea of a multipolar trap and then how we might find ourselves uh, in these multipolar traps as a result of developing new technologies. Uh, right, so 
it's been a while since I last actually read the Meditations on Moloch. It's a really long essay. And uh, so I don't remember what exactly they meant by... Okay, got it. I, I, I know what uh, Scott meant, meant by it. So yeah, the idea is that uh, a lot of uh, big problems that humanity has can be uh, explained like, as games between uh, multiple players. So, for example, if you think about um, uh, overfishing, you see that it's a game-theoretic situation where uh, fishermen are, me- are motivated, have like, certain motivations. Yet, we know that if sufficient number of uh, uh, fishermen follow those motivations, the outcome is predictably bad because there's like more, more power to fish than uh, the nature has uh, power to kind of replenish the uh, fish supply. And it really doesn't matter if like, it's just like one fisherman or two fishermen uh, decide to stop fishing. The, the outcome will still remain unchanged. So there, there's a need to have like, larger coordination uh, between the players uh, of the game, so to speak, uh, to actually achieve a better outcome uh, than you would get by default by just following the local local incentives. And it turns out that uh, like, there are like many, many problems that humanity has, uh, going from crime, corruption, to yeah, overfishing, deforestation, global warming, and the things that I'm interested in, uh, technological existential risks, that kind of share this common uh, game theoretic kernel, uh, that people just have local incentives to, to <laughs> accept bribes or, or uh, sort of push the development of uh, potentially dangerous technology. Yet, like, we know that if sufficient number of uh, people do that, the outcome is, is not good. So what are these technologies that, uh, that offer such, uh, such potentially dangerous outcomes? Okay, there are two big categories of existential risks. Uh, one big category is so-called uh, natural uh, existential risks. Uh, so uh, classical example within category are asteroids. So it like, turns out that every 10 million years or so, uh, a big enough rock comes along that uh, has the ability to just uh, sterilize the planet and render it completely in- uninhabitable. Uh, so as a sort of advanced civilization, we might want to uh, sort of beef up our planetary defenses, so to speak, and, and try to lower uh, the risks of uh, being kind of accidentally wiped out. Uh, and the other big category are uh, sort of human-originated or technological uh, existential risks, uh, that is, uh, risks that uh, we ourselves create by, uh, by doing science and technology. Uh, and a uh, classical example there uh, is nuclear, nuclear technology, uh, because like, if you have sufficient, uh, sufficiently big nuclear arsenal, Lucky, it seems that right now we don't seem to have like a sufficiently big uh, arsenal, but it's uh, this thing fluctuates. So, but the thing is, like once you have big, su- sufficiently big nuclear arsenal, it's possible just like uh, sort of wipe out the entire entire species. Nuclear technology is just uh, sort, of, uh, sort of one example, and not necessarily the most powerful example of existential risk uh, risk technologies that might provide might uh, result in uh, being existentially risky. Another example might be uh, synthetic biology. So if you think about it, uh, evolution isn't really a great designer. If you look at, uh, there's this, uh, I think the site called uh, WTF evolution or something like that. 
uh, where uh, people are just being uh, exposing uh, really crazy stuff that evolution has come up with. And uh, not, like one example is that the human eye is just really poor engineering. Uh, like no, no human engineer in the right mind would, would design a, a camera like that. Uh, it has just goes completely backwards well, in the literal sense. If humans uh, that are humanity seems to be a more powerful uh, designer than evolution uh, ever was. Another example is that we have uh, came up with uh, firearms. We have ca we came up with um, radio things that must be useful uh, for organisms. That yet evolution never discovered those uh, designs. So if we have humans designing organisms, uh, we might actually create uh, organisms that are just much more fit uh, for the ecosystem here and might just uh, accidentally or deliberately or as my co-founder at the Center for the Study of Extension Risk says by error or terror take over the uh, ecosystem. Right, so nuclear, uh, synthetic biology, then one uh, potentially devastating technology could be terraforming. Like there's already discussion about uh, like kind of counteracting uh, global warming uh, by changing the content of the atmosphere uh, and uh, yeah, distributing uh, floating particles there to block, block off the sunlight. I mean, once humanity has, will start doing really big projects like that, there's inevitably a risk of uh, actually something going wrong, again, by error or terror that might wipe us off, wipe us out. And finally, Artificial, artificial intelligence, uh, because all these technologies that we might be concerned about, once we have AI driving the technological development instead of humans, uh, all these concerns also apply to the products of AI. Uh, so, and also the interesting thing about AI is that uh, if we get AI right, we would be able to address all the other technologies, technological risks. Whereas, like if we just uh, fix the bio, fix the risk from biotechnology, say that might not be sufficient. Well, that's unlikely to be sufficient uh, uh, against uh, AI risk. So I want to, um, so AI is what I'd really like to talk about, but I, I, <laughs> I have one, uh, one, there's one thing that I've had a hard time getting my head around with AI, and that's the computational irreducibility of a human brain and how we could possibly emulate something of equivalent power in a, uh, in a, com in a computer, you know? It seems like that, that's something really... Uh, it, it seems to me, when I just think about that intuitively, to be an insurmountable, uh, an insurmountable obstacle is, is creating something of sufficient complexity. You're right. So, I mean, first of all, there is a lot of uncertainty about this, like what, uh, uh, how exactly or how big of a project do you need uh, to replicate either sort of a, a verbatim or or in a more circumstantial or more, what's the word, more abstract way, uh, something that is a human brain. That said, like, there is really no evidence that there is something uh, intractable about human brain. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, there, there is this interesting uh, uh, point that I read recently that uh, like we have these human savants uh, who are able to do like, amazing calculations in their head, and uh, yet they can't factor numbers. Uh, all the amazing calculations that they can do are actually computationally very, fairly easy. So, and the hard stuff like factoring numbers uh, or like reversing uh, cryptographic hashes, like they can't do. So uh, 
like, which is evidence for for human brains actually using uh, computationally tractable algorithms. Uh, indeed, that the first time we, we would see humans doing uh, kind of stuff that would look untractable, would become demonstratable, untractable, that would be like really big news and in some ways uh, comforting news if you are concerned about uh, how much time we have left until um, until we have human uh, until we have AIs better than humans in in various critical domains. Let me just re-examine that statement. So we don't have uh, evidence of the human brain performing intractable computational tasks. Yes. Normally people think of things like consciousness as being computationally intractable. Could you, uh, and, and I know that this might be going down a, uh, yes. a kind of a philosophical rabbit hole, but could you address the, that, you know, that, that response? Yeah, sure. So I think like one, the typical response that I have about consciousness is that in some ways consciousness is not interesting topic in this particular context. Because whether a system is conscious or not is a question about what this system is, not so much about what this system can do. Uh, so it's perfectly, I can, so I can certainly imagine systems that are smarter than humans in kind of taking over the planet and controlling it, yet that are not conscious. So it's, uh, it's not obvious to me at all uh, why would you need consciousness uh, to be smarter than humans, so yeah, that's my typical typical response. Isn't it? Isn't consciousness part of free will though? And uh, and isn't consciousness tied up inseparably from uh, from agency? No, not at all. Uh, it uh, in some ways, like if you really start um, deconstructing what in, what agency means, what what agents are. I think it's hard to escape the conclusion that thermostat is an agent. Like what agency means uh, in sort of practical uh, terms is uh, a system that has internal ability to represent like some aspects of the outside world. Like, temp like thermostat represents the temperature, uh, temperature aspect of the local environment, and then base its decisions uh, on that representation. So, for example. So yeah, thermostat basically uses the internal representation of the outside temperature to uh, make a decision about like should it like turn the, turn on or off the heating uh, or or um, AC. And another example is uh, uh, a self-driving car. It uses the observations that it gets to build an internal representation of what is going around it. Where are the other cars? What is the speed limit? How? What is the shape of the road? Etc. And then it uses this uh, representation of the world called a sort of word model uh, to make predictions. What are the consequences of its actions? If it if it breaks, will will it will that be like how that would influence the future from from that point onwards? If it like turns left, how that how that will play out in the in the future in the world? And then it uh, uses that uh, these kind of imagined scenarios, whether they are explicit or implicit, uh, to actually pick the actions that are uh, most compatible with its goals. So like if, if self-driving car has the goal of uh, going from point A to point B uh, safely uh, without bumping into anything, it basically will constantly use the internal representation of the word model 
to to come up with with the best sequence of decisions that actually uh, take it from point A to point B, and that 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 the same. So is same same logic can be applied to like anything, and I do think uh, including humans. So uh, in essence, an artificial intelligence is a uh, is let's just use the term agent if uh, and, and tell me if if I'm uh, if I'm using the wrong terminology here, but. Um, is an agent with a extremely advanced model of the world. Yeah, it, I mean, it's not just enough to have an advanced model. It's also important to have um, ability to uh, use that model to model the consequences of your actions, and then like basically pick pick the actions. Uh, so, for example, the uh, there was just a few months ago there was this big uh, uh, news about uh, AlphaGo. Uh, DeepMind, uh, where I was a former investor and director in, by the way, they, they defeated uh, humans in the, in the game of Go. And in, in game of Go, the word model is like really simple. It's, it's just a 19 by 19 uh, board and you can have like uh, each uh, location there can be either empty, have a black, black stone or, or white stone on it. So the model is really simple. But uh, what makes it really complex is that the model the world and the corresponding model can evolve in very kind of complex ways. I mean, the technical term for it is that the branching factor is really, really high. Uh, so at each point, you can you can make like up to like two hundred, almost two hundred uh, moves. And so it's like what makes it what makes computer go really complex is not the complexity of the word model or what makes computer go players really advanced is uh, not that they have a very complex model, but they have the ability to actually use that model uh, and uh, predict what are the, predict or figure out what are the best moves to make that make this uh, model or the, make the future flow to the direction that it, that it wants, i.e. Uh, to make the computer player to win the game. Uh, we've come to an interesting point here because in a game of Go, the human and the computer player are diametrically opposed in their goals. Mm-hmm. What if two different artificial intelligences were playing Go against one another? Um, what would that, you know, what would that look like? Is that something that has been? Uh, uh, what if we had two artificial intelligences in competition? Uh, managing systems outside of you know, in the real world, outside of of this uh, of of the, an abstract game of Go. Right. So there are many questions. Uh, I mean, what what does it look like to have uh, two computer Go players uh, play against each other? I mean, that, that's a very simple answer. Like the the computer Go tournaments, they they are a thing, and and they have happened, and you can kind of basically go and look up the results in the internet. Uh, in fact, when AlphaGo was trained. It was uh, tested against other computer Go programs. But you, even even more, uh, like when AlphaGo was doing its uh, uh, training runs, it actually played against itself uh, to figure out what are good strategies uh, in game in computer computer Go that uh, might not have been necessarily discovered by humans. And indeed, uh, from what I hear from DeepMind. AlphaGo was able to discover uh, new strategies in, in Go that humans actually never had figured out. Uh, so that's one, one answer. So the other question is, uh, 
is uh, interesting. Uh, and it's, there is like a bunch of, uh, again, a bunch of uncertainty about what's called uh, unipolar versus multipolar outcomes in AI. So the difference is like, are we, the question is, once we have AIs that are able to do so technological development, including AI development, as well as humans can, is this trajectory going to result? Well, let's, okay, let me rewind. Supposedly, we are on a trajectory of creating more and more powerful AIs. Uh, so, so this trajectory uh, logically would take us to the point where we have AIs that are just as good, if not better, than humans in developing the next version of AI. So the question is, like, is this situation going to take us into a, into a world where we have just one, one AI to dominate everything? Or do we have several AIs uh, that uh, are in some sense uh, sort of uh, equilibrium or, or game uh, against each other? And there are sort of arguments uh, for and against uh, both of us. So I'm kind of somewhat undecided about, uh, about this. Uh, although I do think it's likely, more likely than, than not, that we will have unipolar outcome. Uh, because uh, for the, it's kind of instrumental for whatever goals the first AI to achieve uh, sort of superhuman status. And whatever goals it has, uh, it's kind of instrumental to look at what other potentially competing projects there are and, uh, and try to sort of hold them back. Uh, yet, I mean, this is not given. It's, it's still still possible that uh, it actually would be very hard for an AI to do, to improve itself or create further pro- further AI projects. Uh, so, at which point, it's kind of more likely that uh, the different uh, human-driven AI projects would reach capacity at roughly the same time, and we will end up in a more sort of a economy of different AIs. But yeah, personally, I don't think that's very likely. But uh, some people who are, whose opinion I do respect do think that it's actually likely to have a multipolar outcome. So in the event of a multipolar outcome, how do these AIs, as we've already seen, if an AI can come up with strategies at Go that humans have never discovered after thousands of years of playing the game, um, I don't, I'm not sure. Has Go been around for thousands of years? Yeah, Go is... Uh one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, uh, classical game that uh, humanity has, and it has been, yeah, I don't actually remember, but it was thousands of years. Yeah. So in thousands of years of playing Go, we've never come up with some stra- some of the strategies that... Uh, yeah, that Alpha, AlphaGo discovered in March, yes. So wouldn't it be reasonable to suggest that competing in, in a non-abstract game like you know, what one in the a a artificial intelligence might be able to discover strategies that in in that realm that we haven't discovered. Yeah, I think it's very reasonable because, like, I mean, humans have discovered strategies that humans have never discovered. So it's like once you have a system that is uh, more capable than humans, it's I think it's very reasonable to assume that it will discover things that humans uh, never did. So quite quickly, we get to a point where it's AI versus AI. Uh, well, again, it depends on like if you have uh, like sort of unipolar or multipolar outcome. If you have multipolar outcome, then yes, uh, we would have some kind of uh, economic or trading situation between AIs that have different comparable advantages. Uh, but again, I th- think it's like I mean, humans are not in a trading situation with ants. So, being in an economical context with um, 
with other agents assumes that you're roughly comparable in your capabilities and not just completely dominating uh, the other one because like then it's like like if there's nothing you you, you would want uh, from the other agent there is no reason for you to uh, be in a trade trading situation with that, that agent so that being the case how would um so I mean, what what I'm really driving at here is uh, is, and I want to get your opinion on on both the multipolar and unipolar uh, scenarios. It seems to me that there's a danger with um, in a multipolar scenario that we wind up with the uh, the aggressive competition between two AIs with very simple and non-human goals. Uh, you know, sacrificing uh, the very world that we are hoping to develop with their help. Yeah, that's exactly correct. Uh, the, uh, like sometimes people kind of uh, intuitively think that uh, the multipolar outcome would be somehow more benign uh, for humanity, but I don't really see how that can be true. The, sort of, uh, in some ways, a multipolar outcome would be even less predictable than unipolar outcome. Uh, what the results about what the results would be? Because like effectively, you would be replacing. Uh, single agent's preferences uh, with a Nash equilibrium uh, between uh, different agents with different uh, preferences and these Nash equilibriums might not even be stable. So it's like uh, you're basically creating a sort of fairly predictable, potentially, well, not fa- I wouldn't say fairly predictable, but relatively predictable, uh, potentially predictably bad situation with a highly unpredictable uh, situation. So I, I really don't see how this can be like uh, an improvement over the unipolar outcome. And so, so what about the unipolar outcome? How do you see that evolving? I'm Siri. Um, I mean, it really depends on the dynamics. So, so the concern has been that uh, uh, I, I do actually have like a quote from one AI researcher. Uh, let, me, let me try to find it quickly. Um, So, uh, an AI researcher uh, named uh, Jacob Steinhardt has said that knowledge is something that is regularly informed by reality, whereas values are only weakly informed by reality. That means that an AI which learns incorrect facts could notice that it makes wrong predictions, but the world might never tell an AI that it learned the wrong values. So, that read the concern about, uh, the classical concern about Unipolar outcomes and uh, well, AI outcomes in general is that we we use the we can solve the task of making AIs more and more capable uh, with because this is the thing that's easy. Like uh, as as Jacob Steinhardt said, uh, AIs will have this feedback loop. If they if they make bad predictions, then they then they know that they should basically learn and correct uh, themselves. Yet we fail, completely fail at this harder task, which is programming the AIs with correct values. Uh, and there is no obvious feedback loop. Although people have started thinking about it, like how can we create that feedback loop uh, that would steer the AIs towards uh, kind of wanting the same things that we want. Uh, that is called uh, value alignment. So yeah, the concern is that we will create ex- extremely capable system, yet that doesn't really have the same uh, concerns that we have, same values that we have, meaning that uh, I think the most sort of mundane thing that we might get wrong is that uh, 
humanity has very narrow constraints uh, when it comes to our preferences about uh, uh, the environment. I mean, we, we value certain temperature range, we want the atmosphere to contain certain amount of oxygen, etc., etc., and uh, making sure that the radioactivity levels are, are low. Yeah, we're we shielded from, from the cosmic radiation, etc., etc. I mean, AI, by default, wouldn't have any of those concerns. Why would it? Uh, so, uh, like, uh, it, it, it probably would be actually beneficial for it to have removed oxygen from the atmosphere. Like, if you kind of forget about uh, the really specific concerns that we have about the environment, uh, we just might bring about a predictable environmental disaster. So in the unipolar scenario, how do we uh, develop a system for aligning an AI's uh, behavior with our requirements for survival? And how in a multipolar scenario do we develop some system to coordinate, uh, coordinate AIs so that we don't find ourselves in the crossfire of this, uh, of this economic war between soulless agents? So, I mean, my current strategy is sort of a meta strategy, uh, try to sort of cultivate more, uh, cultivate and catalyze more research uh, in the world uh, when it comes to actually trying to figure, figure out answers to those, those questions that you pose. Uh, and uh, luckily there has been like significant traction uh, that the ecosystem has uh, sort of managed to get over the last uh, two, three, five years. Uh, and uh, we have got the, like significant funding from uh, like from Elon Musk, for example, donated ten million dollars last year uh, to Future of Life Institute. Uh, that's one of the institutes that I co-founded. And then in uh, in UK, uh, Leverhulme Trust, which is the largest, or at least one of the largest uh, private funders of science in UK, donated uh, basically ten. I think it was ten million pounds to create the. Uh, an institute called uh, Center for Future of Intelligence. And uh, also there is some research progress uh, that has come out of this, uh, uh, this work, even though like, there are just a couple of dozen or so uh, people working on these issues. For example, there's this idea of, uh, the idea suggested by, uh, uh, by Paul Cristiano, uh, a researcher uh, at Berkeley, I think, uh, of uh, approval-directed agents. Uh, so the idea is that uh, instead of uh, creating a very capable agent and then just telling it to, I don't know, maximize the profits of a hedge fund or, or, or some silly thing like that, we try to create an agent uh, whose primary goal is to predict what a human committee would do in its stead and then, then do it. Uh, so like this is, a, this is a basically kind of taking the as I said earlier, like the Jacob Steinhardt pointed out that there is a, a kind of a problem that facts are easier to learn than values. Uh, so Paul Cristiano's approach kind of takes the, replaces the value question with fact questions. Instead of uh, like, uh, having the AI to figure out what is valuable to do, which is like a value question, it uh, asks the AI to figure out what a human committee would do, which is a fact question. Uh, I mean, there's still many problems with that approach, but this is just one example of, uh, of a research direction that people are pursuing right now. Uh, so yeah, like, like uh, such approaches would probably help with both uh, uh, unipolar and multipolar outcome. 
uh, I do think that the multipolar outcome is just more complex uh, and uh, depending on the speed at which those uh, AIs uh, in this multipolar situation would uh, improve further, like we might, uh, like I mean, if it's like really nice case for humanity, uh, which means that we have multipolar outcome and AIs would not really self-improve really quickly, then it basically could use sort of like societal and, and policy and, uh, and basically like the usual mechanisms that we have used to kind of uh, direct the future of societies or direct the future of world, like for, for bad or for worse, we, we, we have managed to do that so far. Uh, but like once you have agents that are just like so much smarter uh, than humans and they are in a multipolar outcome, then you have to do like a lot of uh, preparatory work uh, when it comes to just thinking about uh, theoretical aspects of economy and, and doing just like a, yeah, economical uh, work, which is kind of interesting because that actually brings us uh, to the uh, cryptocurrency world and, and uh, sort of blockchains because I do see that there's a fair amount of uh, similar work. And that was also pointed out by Vitalik uh, in his... Uh, blog post called uh, Why Crypto Economics and X-Risk Researchers Should Listen to Each Other More. Uh, and he, I, if I quote him, he said that AI safety is about agents with uh, IQ 150 trying to control agents with IQ 6000, whereas crypto economics is about agents with IQ 5 trying to control agents with IQ 150. So it's like there is like an interesting kind of symmetry interesting symmetry between the problems that crypto economics uh, folks are trying to solve and uh, sort of problems that AI uh, safety researchers are trying to solve. So have you been, uh, have you spoken to many of these crypto economics researchers and, uh, and you have, have you found any, any kind of uh, interesting common ground apart from just the, uh, apart from just the now emerging realization that there might be some, some, some commonalities and, uh, and goals? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, one thing that I did last year, we had uh, like a couple of workshops in Tallinn, Estonia, uh, last year with um, uh, between the, some people from Ethereum, including Vitalik, uh, then um, the Estonian ID e-residency team <coughs> that are working on uh, global digital identities, uh, and then uh, Future of Humanity Institute from Oxford. For, with the purpose of, like, the purpose of this uh, introducing the uh, Ethereum team and the Estonian uh, ID, ID card team was to just uh, bring potentially the capability of doing the KYC, uh, Know Your Client, functionality to Ethereum, and the purpose of having uh, the Oxford folks uh, around was to actually think about the larger scale issues that we are basically discussing right now, that uh, is there any anything that the AI risk people could learn uh, from the kind of recent results. I mean, the, the blockchain and cryptography in general is like really highly, like quickly evolving domain. And it basically contains a bunch of uh, non-trivial and interesting insights. Uh, so I think it does like really value, just like Vitalik, I do think it would be valuable to have basically those insights to be potentially reused in a sort of bigger context of how can we actually uh, control the outcomes uh, from the uh, from this process that we're in that might be actually kind of generating many non-human agents 
some of them much smarter than humans. So how do you see the future of these two fields evolving as, uh, as things progress? Um, certainly I hope that uh, there will be uh, more and more people who would be interested in contributing to the AI risk field. In fact, like uh, my kind of big strategic picture about uh, AI risk or existential risk uh, field in general has been has been that um, like when I started uh, to work on these issues, it was in like 2008, 2009, the entire field had this what I call reputational bottleneck, meaning that uh, there were a bunch of people working on these issues, but almost nobody took them seriously. Now with the start of uh, Cambridge Center at the at uh, Cambridge University, uh, that bottleneck was largely lifted. It was surprising to many people that uh, sort of we have a list of uh, almost who is who in British science, starting with Stephen Hawking, uh, who basically say that look, these issues are important, and like, uh, people who are people who are concerned about it and working up working on these issues are not stupid. Uh, so, like the reputation of bottleneck was largely lifted. Although still there are people who basically try to call Stephen Hawking stupid, uh, <laughs> which is like I think it's, it it tells uh, l- less about Stephen Hawking than it tells about these people. Uh, <laughs> now, the second bottleneck that we are working on right now, and which is uh, like greatly basically relaxed, uh, is financing. Like one, but still like the, the example that I use that the humanity spends. Uh, about uh, 1,000 times uh, fewer resources on its long-term survival than it spends on tobacco advertising. So it's uh, like uh, the the financial bottleneck is still there, although it's much better. We, right now we have uh, like significantly bigger uh, funds to work with than we used to just five years ago. So, And the upcoming bottleneck that I already see is that uh, we need more people, we need more talent. Uh, because the talent that is required uh, to address the AI risk and other extension risk issues, this is like highly sought after people. Uh, they are people who are like really excellent in economics. They are people who are really excellent in machine learning uh, and who are just otherwise like academically brilliant. So it's like they have so many other uh, opportunities to choose from and almost all of them uh, are not really comparable when it comes to actually uh, of uh, having really long-term positive feedback uh, or b- b- positive impact. So that has been my main selling point that look like if you really want to want to influence the uh, outcome of this century and also importantly have a lot of fun in the process, process because there is uh, amazing things that I have learned uh, from my own career in existential risk reaction is that uh, uh, the uh, these issues are actually fun to work with. So, so uh, if yes, if you want to have fun and you want to have great impact, please consider uh, like contributing to the existential risk reduction. In, in fact, there is this uh, one of the institutes or one of the organizations that I support uh, in this existential risk reduction ecosystem is an organization called Eighty Thousand Hours. Uh, so, like if you go like eight five zeros hours dot org, it's a career advice. Site and they actually say that their uh, AI this AI risk uh, researcher uh, profile career profile has been like one of the most profile most popular profiles uh, that they feature. Uh, so yeah, like this is long answer to how I how I see and how I hope 
that the AI and existential risk reduction uh, field will, will uh, evolve further uh, by basically, hopefully will attract more and more talent uh, that are able to produce more and more insightful research because there are very interesting questions uh, to be solved there. And uh, when it comes to the crypto econ field, I mean, I'm much less knowledgeable of this, so I probably can't give you like uh, anything comparable answers that uh, people who are actually kind of uh, doing that as a day job uh, could. But I do think uh, it's uh, it's like super interesting field. Uh, as I said before in, in some forums that uh, I, I think the most interesting bit thing about blockchain isn't uh, sort of the monetary aspect or or even perhaps the, not the applications uh, that, that we might get distributed apps, but it's the fact that for the last six, seven years, uh, humanity has lived in, a, in sort of like a new regime without uh, fully understanding it. And the regime is that it, now it's possible uh, for the entire humanity to globally agree about a piece of data without having any central authority to maintain that consensus. So it's like an interesting capa technological capability that humanity now has. And can we use that uh, to, I don't know, build a better UN, for example, or, or develop uh, coordination mechanisms that uh, would get us out of uh, this bad, bad Nash equilibrium, the Nash equilibriums that get thrown at us, as the Meditations of Moloch article uh, so painfully explains. So, hey, this has been great. Where can people find out more about the Center for the Study of Existential Risk and, uh, and the other uh, uh, platforms that you, you're developing? Yeah. So, uh, Center for the Study of Existential Risk is uh, uh, CSER.org, C-S-E-R.org, uh, and the Future of Life Institute, which actually has more uh, developed uh, uh, website. We have like news sections and uh, blog sections and whatnot. It's just uh, Future of Life uh, as one word.org. Fantastic. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Hey, um, okay, so I'm just going to knock the, the interview off. I'll, I'll, the other thing I wanted to talk about was. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info, or follow us on Twitter at etherreview. Review.